and greetings to each one in the name of Jesus this morning. It's a blessing to be gathered together this morning. And um, the thought just went through my mind here um, a little bit ago that this is our first Christmas together as a, as a group down here at Word of Hope. I am thankful. I appreciate what was shared here this morning already. And um, Brother Lamar got up and, and just was talking about, about the excitement of the angels and the excitement of their, I forget how that was, in Job that he shared. And the fact that God's not just putting up with us, but he has a plan. And, you know, as I think of God having a plan for us, that, that, that gives me a lot of questions. Um, I can say I believe it, but who are we as man in comparison with our almighty God? And it, it just blessed me again to realize that, to hear that again, that, that God, how was it? I think you said he's not putting up with us. He's not just putting up with us, but, but he has a plan. And as we think of God having a plan for us, his sending his son Jesus is just a testimony that he does have a plan. Thinking of Jesus being God's son, I was just sitting here thinking of, of my sons, my daughter, my wife, and I want to do what's best for them. And God wanted to do what was best for his son too, I believe. But he was willing to take his son, take him from the glories of heaven and send him to this earth for us. I'm thankful for that. So thankful. This morning, I, I guess the best I've done for a message title is Christmas 2021. So if you want a title, um, I guess we can give it that. Um, something that I think can happen, and I'm going to read a, a story here in a little bit. But we come to Christmas time, and, and maybe it's, I guess I consider myself younger yet, but I, I look out among you and see there's a number of you that are younger than me yet. Um, but maybe it's just um, as we are raising our young families and thinking about the Christmas traditions we've had for years um, growing up and some of that we're establishing with our own families now and we think why why do we do what we do and and I think it's good if we do I really believe it's good if we do to consider what we're doing as we celebrate Christmas and I think there are there are two ditches that we can get into 
um, as we celebrate Christmas, where we can just go right along with what the world does and not really take time to consider why we do what we do to celebrate Christmas. I think the other ditch that we can take is to, to just treat the season as, as any other day. And yeah, you know, we recognize, we believe that God sent his only son, but this is how the world does it. So we're just going to swing the other way on the pendulum and, and almost not recognize it. So um, I, I don't want any one of us to be in any of those two ditches, but I do want us to, to consider. And so I have here, it's called um, a Christmas parable. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Calvary Messenger. The Beachy Church puts this out, and this is from back in December of 2013. Um, Christmas parable, it's called the Festival of Earl. <clears throat> Cardwell was a little hamlet tucked deep in the mountain range called Nether. Cardwell had been birthed long ago and was being sustained by the mining industry. Day after day, the men in that place went into the bowels of the earth to extract her bounty. The inherent dangers of the trade and the isolation of the town, together with the austerity of its climate, developed a people who were resilient, resourceful, and independent who learned to live life one day at a time because they had no guarantee of tomorrow. One day, a man named Earl walked into town. When people asked where he had come from or how he found this place, he vaguely commented that he had been sent to do what he could to make Cardwell a better place. He lived among them for several years. On some days, he would accompany the roughnecks into the mines. Other days he spent doing odd jobs around town, like fixing a widow's screen door, weeding somebody's garden, planting flowers in the park, or doing whatever he could to benefit the lives of those who lived in that town. While some regarded Earl with suspicion, others were enthused by his friendship and contribution to the general good. They all agreed that Earl was never discovered to be pursuing selfish interests and was always refusing pay for his efforts. When his neighbors and friends tried to pay him for his kindness, he told them that his most cherished recompense was to observe them showing benevolence to their neighbors. He singularly invested his days in the benefit of others. When Earl died unexpectedly, those most loyal to him laid him to rest in the local cemetery right beside the townspeople, the miners, the shopkeepers, and even the stillborn babies. Those who regarded Earl's example as favorable pondered what they observed and learned while he lived among them. As they relived those memories, what was most outstanding to them was the way his eyes would sparkle when he said, my most cherished recompense is to observe you showing benevolence to your neighbors. There grew up in that town a group of people who determined to live a life like Earl had. They fancied that Earl's spirit still lived among them, and they sensed his approval when they extended benevolence to their fellows. That selfless manner of life became such a recognizable pattern that they became known as the Earlites. Nobody could re really remember exactly how it started, but some in that place felt that, for a variety of reasons, a town festival should be observed. Some were happy for a break in the monotony of daily toil and routine, Others were keenly aware that not all who ventured into the mines came back. 
Still others were glad for the opportunity that this festival provided to indulge some of their baser interests and vices. As many traditions evolve and mature, so did this festival. Many curious and quaint details made this celebration unique. It was a time when nobody felt obligated to go into the mines. Families and individuals alike could take a break. However, they agreed that it was characterized more and more by unbridled revelry. Eventually, it was determined that this festival should be observed during the first full week of March, and so was called the Festival of March. All in the hamlet of Cardwell looked forward to that festival in the end of a long, bleak winter, when they could celebrate and also honor some deity for his blessing on them, whatever that meant. After many years, the influence of the Uralites in that place that had begun subtly and gradually grew to have a profound effect. Some people came to understand that there is more to life than simply surviving the mines and rigors of mountain life and its elements. There was a deep and abiding, satis a deep and abiding satisfaction and peace that came from living life as they understood that Earl would have lived. Nobody was alive anymore who remembered when Earl lived among them. But the evidence was unmistakable that Earl's mission of making Cardwell a better place had, become had been accomplished through his efforts and those of his apologists. As the March festivals came and went, some of the Earlites found the observance of the festival to be at odds with the patterns of life they had learned from Earl. After much discussion, it was decided that the festival of March should be renamed the festival of Earl. This conclusion was not a trivial matter and came after much deliberation and considerable opposition. The Earlites who celebrated the festival sanitized many of the traditions of the festival of March, thus to make them less objectionable. They even added a few of their own. The years rolled on and on. The Earlites enjoyed celebrating the festival of Earl with much pomp and circumstance. A generation of Earlites grew up who knew little about the festival of March but wondered about the origins of this cherished festival of Earl. So they consulted the archives and were surprised at what they found. They had supposed that Earl was actually the reason the festival began, but it was not so. They were sobered to learn that many of the cherished traditions of the festival with Earlian designations had more dubious roots in the festival of March. And so, among the Earlites, a great discussion ensued. Some said, how can we who honor Earl and his example participate in the festival rooted in all that Earl was not? Others said, we are honoring the memory of Earl. Who cares how it all began? The most important thing is that we honor Earl today. Still others said, every time we think about the detestable festival of March and how the festival of Earl constituted a mere rebranding of its re reprehensible customs and practices, we simply cannot in good conscience participate. To which some replied, Earl taught us to live for and serve others all the time. What better time to declare to the whole world that we are indeed Earlites than during this festival that bears his name. To shun the festival named for Earl doesn't honor him. And so I'm told that discussion continues today far away in the little hamlet of Cardwell deep in the mountains of Nether, what should we do with the festival? What would you do?
again, a parable. But I think we too ought to be considering. Brother Stephen asked a question that he took a different route than um, what it kind of got my mind thinking. He said, what are we doing now with what happened? What are we doing with that birth of Christ that happened so many years ago? And we may ask the questions, how should we celebrate this day we call Christmas? Or are we celebrating the day? Or are we celebrating what happened on that day so many years ago? This morning, I am not here to discourage anyone from observing Christmas. I would be disappointed if that would happen this morning. You know, we have Christmas traditions. I think probably everyone here does. Um, things that you've done growing up. And I think of how when my wife and I got married, how her family probably would have had some more Christmas traditions than what my family did. And, and some of that we have uh, probably adopted some into our family. Just to, to name a few, one that's pretty high on the list, gift exchanges. Now there would be decorations, wreaths on the door, lights, greenery, trees. Singing Christmas carols can be a tradition. Maybe special meals, and family gatherings, and candles, and things like that. Maybe you have a tradition of having a special Christmassy story that you, um, that you read. Or maybe it's a, a certain kind of food that needs to be eaten every Christmas. I mean, many different things. And this morning, I, I firmly believe that each one of us here has a desire to honor Christ. But I want to ask myself the question, and I want you to ask yourselves the question, what are these Christmas traditions doing for you? Or maybe we should ask, what are these traditions? What are these Christmas traditions doing for Christ? How are they drawing our hearts and our minds to Christ? As Christ looks down on my Christmas activities, what does he say? Does he feel honored? Or does he feel forgotten? Or maybe even shamed? What should we do with this day? I want to invite you to Matthew chapter 2, where we have the account of the wise men coming to Jesus. The wise men brought gifts to Jesus. And I'd mentioned gift exchanges as 
a Christmas tradition that many people have, not all. And I would like to, to see what we can draw from this passage here, especially, mainly from verse 11, but um, to see what we can draw in our desire to honor Jesus, not only on Christmas Day, but throughout the whole year. Begin reading at verse 1, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And now Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. We'll stop reading there. So as we consider these wise men, um, we don't know exactly uh, what the age of Jesus would have been when they came to him, but they did come to him. He, he was in Bethlehem. And we don't know for sure exactly where they came from. Uh, somewhere to the east or from the east. But verse 11 says that they came into the house. And this was where Mary and, and Jesus were. And I don't know if Joseph was with them at the time. It did not, does not mention his name there. They came into the house. Now, the purpose that they had of coming to visit Jesus was to worship him. In verse 2, we read of that purpose. Uh, we are come to worship him. And then right along with that, uh, as they saw where the star stopped above the house, it says that they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. They were excited to be at the place where Christ was. And then verse 11, 
says that they fell down and they worshipped him. Now there's some commentary disagreement on their worship of Jesus, um, exactly who they saw him as. And so uh, we're not going to jump into that exactly. But I do want to bring out to us the importance of a heart of worship for Jesus, the one who was sent to us. And not just a heart of worship at Christmas time, all the time, but I think as, as Brother Louis talked of the busyness and how we can, we can almost come up to Christmas and um, forget, forget where we are, forget the purpose, forget the reason. And I just want to challenge us that as we come to this time, that we're not just carried away with all the excitement, the traditions, and what the world has to offer, but that our hearts would truly be drawn to Jesus. In John chapter 4, we have, and you don't need to turn there, but we have the account of the woman at the well and Jesus being there uh, talking with her. And two verses here, he talks, uh, Jesus talks specifically about worship. Um, actually, a few more verses than those. But worship, as I believe it ought to pertain to you and I today. Jesus says, The hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. As we consider worship, worship of Christ in spirit and in truth, There's, as we've mentioned, a lot of things that we do to make Christmas special. And I think there is, is value in that. If, if indeed it is helping us to make it special within our hearts and to draw our hearts closer to Christ. But I don't believe that Christ just wants the outward acts that we do. He wants that true heart, that spirit of worship. We can look back at the Old Testament and see for how many years that there were the rituals, the sacrifices, and there was the law that they followed as a part of their worship. But as Christ came to this earth, I believe even as he came as a baby, um, he said the hour now is. I forget how it says, but it, it's here. It's coming and it's here right now. When true worshipers worship him in spirit and in truth. And as Christ came down from the glories of heaven, he was ushering in that dispensation of worshiping in spirit and in truth. My mind is drawn to a few more people, the shepherds. Uh, Simeon and Anna are a couple more there that my mind is drawn to who, when they beheld Christ, their hearts were drawn to worship and excitement about him. And when you and I, brothers and sisters, when we have 
an encounter with Jesus Christ, it draws our hearts to worship him as well. What better way to bring men's hearts to worship than to come personally to man and then to dwell within their hearts? Again, our Christmas activities should draw our hearts to worshiping God and not to worshiping self. First it says the wise men worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped him. And then it says they gave, they opened their treasures and they presented unto him gifts. Now I'm not sure exactly what the significance of the gifts here is that the wise men gave. The gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. There is some consideration that it does have significance to um, the gold, his coming as a king, the frankincense to his divinity, and the myrrh to his humanity being subject to suffering and death. And um, I didn't put a lot of study into that, so don't ask me to, to break all that down. But um, I, I believe that their, their gifts could have had some significance. But I would like to consider that Christ is God's gift to us, his perfect gift to us. Now a gift is, uh, I was just thinking, what, what is a gift? I, I think a gift is something that is given out of love for someone. A gift is not something that is necessarily deserved. If I choose to give you a gift, um, generally, it's not because you have done something to deserve it. That would be paying someone for something. But I do it because I love you, and I, I want to give the gift to you. Um, the dictionary said something about a gift being something voluntarily given without compensation. And I believe, maybe you have some other thoughts on what a gift is. But that was, uh, I, I was considering, what was God's gift to us? God gave his son Jesus to us because of his love for us. He didn't give Jesus to us because we deserved him. It was because of the plan and his love that he has for us. God gave it to us voluntarily and without compensation. What can I give to my Lord? What gifts can I give to my Lord? And as I pondered what I was trying to explain as a gift, I don't feel that I can fulfill all of that in giving gifts to my Lord. Um, I can give gifts to my Lord out of love for him. 
but I can't say he doesn't deserve it. And to think of giving something voluntarily, yes, those are the gifts we give to God. We give voluntarily to him. And while I don't think we should be focusing totally on the compensation, yet we recognize that there is blessing in giving gifts to the Lord. We might think of our gifts to God as all the things that we can do for him, the money that we can give, the time that we can give, um, helping someone in need, um, giving for a good cause, whatever it may be. Maybe it's the time you give for the church. But brothers and sisters, there, there is no greater gift that we can give than our hearts surrendered before Almighty God. That is the greatest gift that we can give to God. That's what he wants most from you and I. The familiar verse of Romans 12.1 calls us to present our bodies a living sacrifice to God, holy, acceptable, our reasonable service. Surrendering our, it says our bodies, but I believe we could say our very being, all that we are, given wholly to God. Then I was just, uh, saw a number of verses coming from Romans 6, and just the thought of yielding, yielding your members, yielding, giving your all, your whole, your being to God. And as I consider this, then my mind went to uh, the verse in Luke 17.10, the phrase in there, we are all unprofitable servants. And you know, as we come giving ourselves to God, um, that is indeed our only reasonable service. Not that we are really giving something to God, but we are just coming surrendered before God. This morning, as I think of Christmas time, as I think of that night that Jesus was born, think of Joseph and Mary coming into Bethlehem and there's no room. There's no room in Bethlehem except a stable, a cattle shed. Maybe it was an old cave, I'm not sure. And so they, that's where they went. And maybe there was some provisions given them, I'm not sure. Um, a manger. There was a lot going on there in Bethlehem that night, but the world was extremely unaware of what was happening that night there in Bethlehem. You know, today there's not a whole lot of difference. Our world is extremely unaware of what happened that night some 2,000 years ago. For many people, Christmas is, you could say, an exhilarating time, an exciting time, a time when people are, are happy and light and 
Um, you go into stores. At least I guess it's still that way. I haven't been to, into many stores recently, but you hear the Merry Christmas and um, just people offer that quickly. But you know, so much of it is man-made excitement. One must have Christ within to experience its true meaning. What are you doing with Christmas? Is it real to you? Will it be real to you this year? And I just want to challenge each one of us that we would just pause in the busyness and take time to consider what this means to us, that Christ came down to this earth. And not even just to pause in the busyness and take a few moments, but just as we celebrate together, that we would not just be focused on the fun and on the exciting things that we do, but that truly we would be committed to, to worshiping, to worshiping God for what he has given us in his son, Jesus Christ. Let's kneel for prayer.